Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Julia Salazar, the upstart candidate vying for a Brooklyn State Senate seat. Plus, the Afro-Latino Festival is this weekend. We'll hear all about it from the co-director. And coming up, a talk with Salon's Amanda Marcotte about what's next for the resistance now that the president has made his Supreme Court pick. Welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. We're going to jump right in. We have via Skype Amanda Marcotte, politics writer for Salon, who wrote this morning her reaction to the selection of Brett Kavanaugh as Supreme Court nominee. Her piece is titled, Trump's Reality Show Supreme Court Nominee Brett Kavanaugh. He's no moderate. Amanda, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So, so you write in your piece that conservatives are basically trying to suggest that maybe Kavanaugh is more of a centrist, not conservative enough, presumably as a means of blunting any progressive pushback. Will this work? And are they going to be able to kind of spin that narrative? You know, when I wrote that last night, I wasn't entirely sure that it would work. And now I'm more worried that it will. I mean, we already saw Joe Scarborough this morning on MSNBC comparing Kavanaugh to some of the more ridiculous names that were floated, you know, as if suggesting that we should be happy with him, that he's a, a moderate pick, without, you know, taking a moment to realize that perhaps some of those crazier names were floated out there specifically to make Kavanaugh look better by comparison. Which, you know, could have the effect of working. I mean, a lot of people were concerned about Barrett and about her religious affiliation and about her at least personal opinions about abortion. By comparison, Kavanaugh might seem fairly moderate. Yeah, but there's no reason specifically on the issue of abortion or even contraception rights to believe that he's any different than Amy Coney Barrett. Like, he has public records, a speech he gave at the American Enterprise Institute in last September, where he said that the Roe versus Wade decision was, I don't have the exact quote f- from him, but he basically said it was freewheeling judicial creation of unenumerated rights. Hmm. I think that's close to the actual quote. And I think what's critical to understand here, too, is if you believe that about Roe versus Wade, you also have to believe it about Lawrence versus Texas, Griswold versus Connecticut, you know, the decisions that legalized homosexual sex and contraception, because both are based in this same legal argument. Hmm. Well, so now, you know, Susan Collins, the moderate senator from Maine, where everybody was looking to hopefully be discerning and maybe oppose this pick, she said she wouldn't support anyone who is hostile toward Roe v. Wade. But he doesn't really have to be overtly hostile to undermine it, right? That's correct. You know, he's a smart guy, and I think he understands that the way that the anti-abortion movement has been working for decades now is to chip away at abortion rights, never directly overturn Roe, but instead this strategy where they create more and more regulations that are more and more ridiculous, say those regulations are legal until they regulated it out of existence. Ian Milheiser at Think Progress had a really good quote. He said, you know, you don't have to overturn Roe. You just have to say that abortion clinics have to have gold-plated surgical rooms, <laughs> and that would do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, I mean, what's this going to look like, or what could that look like? Because I think Governor Cuomo announced yesterday, if not the day before, that what he was going to do is push the New York state legislature into strengthening laws to protect a women's right to choose. But, of course, that's not going to happen in every state. Yeah, there's two ways this could go. First of all, they could either overturn Roe or, you know, as Milheiser said, just create a regulatory structure that allows states to regulate it out of existence. Mm-hmm. In what case states like Connecticut, Massachusetts, hopefully soon New York, hopefully soon Rhode Island, that have 
California that have laws protecting abortion rights would continue to have laws protecting abortion rights while dozens of other states would probably ban it outright or, you know, regulate it out of existence. I will point out that if Roe is overturned or, or basically destroyed, dismantled so much that it's meaningless, Congress could also pass a law banning abortion. That would overrule any California, New York, Massachusetts laws that protect it. And you quoted Nancy Northup of the Center for Reproductive Rights in your piece about how Trump, you know, he's making good in his promise to pick justices who will reverse Roe. Last night I saw her on TV where she said, we need to learn where he stands on the matter. You know, he needs to be straight with some answers. But these days we don't really receive straight answers during confirmation hearings. Is there any expectation that that's going to change this time around? No, I don't think that there is, but that's exactly what groups like the Center for Reproductive Rights and Planned Parenthood and NARAL are pushing for. They're, they, In the past, what has happened is Democratic senators ask about these precedents. The judicial nominees decline to answer. They say that they haven't decided yet or imply that it's sort of an open question that they'd have to see more evidence before they know what they're going to say. And what these groups are doing is saying that that's not good enough anymore, that these Democratic senators need to refuse to give up that line of questioning until they get an affirmative answer that abortion rights will be protected by the judicial nominee. I don't know if that's going to happen, but at least somebody, I think, is trying to, Hmm. you know, shake us out of this morass. That would require Senate Democrats uh, showing a little bit of spine during the confirmation hearings. I guess we'll have to see about that. You know, there was a piece also today in the New York Times, an op-ed by, I guess, a uh, law school colleague at Yale who was making a liberal case for Kavanaugh. And he said, you know, that there should be a little bit of a trade-off. The Democrats should, you know, be operating in good faith, but also be asking of of Kavanaugh and of the process to actually have him answer these straightforward questions and framing it, I guess, in a way, because he can't talk about something hypothetical, which they'll always say, but saying, how would he have decided Roe differently had he been in that place? You know, I think that's one way to go about it. It's kind of frustrating because I think at this point, most of these judicial nominees have been coached well enough that they know how to wiggle out of any kind of way that you frame this question. You know, particularly on Roe versus Wade and Griswold versus Connecticut, one standard answer that a lot of judicial nominees give is they try to argue there was a different kind of set of rights that should have been decided under, one that sort of allows them to say abortion is wrong and contraception is right. But it's a lot of weaselly language, and I'm, I'm afraid that there's not much that we could do to get them to be straightforward and on the record with us. Hmm. Putting Roe aside for a second, there's also a lot of concern, I think, about Kavanaugh as a pick because of what he has said in the past about presidential power. And while he was involved with Ken Starr report and the efforts to impeach Bill Clinton or in the report of that that led to the impeachment, he changed his position now saying we shouldn't be investigating a sitting president because it's too distracting, although that's not really based on any kind of legal legal or constitutional reasoning. It's just based on his own opinion. But what might that mean for a president who is currently under investigation? That's an interesting question, because on one hand, a lot of those comments that he made were prior to Trump being president, so they weren't really about Donald Trump. Mm. On the other hand, it does suggest that Trump may have been thinking about maintaining a higher level of executive power than a lot of people 
would be comfortable with when he made Kavanaugh's pick. Rudy Giuliani has been saying some stuff in public that suggests to me that he he may have leaned on Trump to pick Kavanaugh specifically because he believes Kavanaugh view the president as above the law in many ways. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask one more question just sort of about kind of framing the, the effort to frame Kavanaugh as a moderate. I mean, what are some of the things that really concern you most about him? I mean, we've talked about Roe versus Wade, but what are some of the other things that you've seen in his record that really trouble you? Well, I think that he is specific, specifically very strongly against labor and environmental regulations, it seems, of any sort. He has ruled against EPA regulations, you know, that would stop mercury from being spewed into the environment, that would restrain climate change type gases. He has ruled against workers' rights repeatedly. The most interesting case on that was he ruled in favor of SeaWorld and against the federal government when the government tried to fine SeaWorld for allowing a killer whale to kill by dismemberment, one of their trainers. That case was very famous. I expect it to come up during the confirmation hearings. Well, I mean, when you say allow, I mean, they just didn't provide the proper safeguards for that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not allow. They didn't allow, but Uh I think a lot of journalists have accused SeaWorld with some evidence of treating the trainers' lives as if they were, you know, disposable, whereas the killer whales were expensive. Wow, wow. I feel like we've all seen this show before. Well, to put aside, you know, the show that we hadn't seen, like the one last night that felt like it was a reality show, which you which you talk about and how the media kind of just goes along, acquiesces. I mean, the media has to cover it. I mean, this is a man making some of the most consequential decisions of a generation gleefully while the rest of us just sort of cower and cry. But what does the media do? How do they not go along with this reality show that he clearly relishes and relishes being in the spotlight, you know, putting it on prime time? How do, what do we do? What does the media do so that we're not following along to his drumbeat? This is a good question that I've really put a lot of thought in, and I really wish I had a better answer. I mean, I, I'm as guilty as anybody. I, I was on TV yesterday. I was talking about you know, the reality show aspects of this, but I was also contributing to it by engaging in an interview that made it sound like there was a lot of dispute over these different candidates who, in my opinion, were all basically the same. Mm. I think it's a tough question. I mean, I think one one thing that cable news networks could do is reduce the amount of coverage they give to it. You have to cover it some, but it doesn't have to be 24-7 coverage with this, like, tension-building music and making it seem like it's a reality TV show. And then, you know, I feel like to get back to the show that we're going to see, this confirmation hearing, I feel like we've all seen this before, where we have somebody we're going to put, the Democrats are going to, I feel comfortable predicting this, that the Democrats in the Senate will make some noise, they'll put up a show of defiance, but eventually one or two will capitulate, or all the Republicans are going to fall, you know, fall in line, and Kavanaugh will be our next justice. Am, Am I wrong in that prediction, do you think? I think that's right. I do think there is question whether or not all the Democrats will hold the line or not. I think that they would be wise to just for their own reelection prospects, because I think this used to be one of those issues that wasn't as big a deal on the left. But now I think people are beginning to realize that Supreme Court justices really do matter. And it could hurt a Democrat if they are seen as being cowardly or capitulating on this issue. Even ones in red states, though, or purple states. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a myth that people in purple states or red states want to see their Democrats be wobbly. Mm. I think that uh, people respect a spine a lot more than they're often given credit for. Mm. And what would you recommend progressives in Brooklyn do to fight back against some of this? You know, I think, you know, we saw um, Elizabeth Warren out there, Bernie Sanders out there, people kind of getting everybody kind of animated and activated, but to what end and how do we channel some of this energy? Well, I think it's worth remembering when you live in New York that your senator is the Senate minority leader. That may not seem like a big deal. Chuck Schumer has been out there really shaking, you know, the trees, saying that he was he's going to try and get the Democrats in line to vote against this, that they're going to resist it. I think that what New York voters could do is call Schumer's office, support him in that decision, let him know that you expect him to hold the line on red state Democrats like Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. And to really be a champion for this cause and really push it and be strong. Yeah. And again, the Republicans can confirm Kavanaugh without a single Democratic vote. Mm -hmm. But I think that the Trump administration would very much like to get a Democratic vote or two and claim that this was a bipartisan win. There is value in depriving them of that narrative. All right. Well, well, Amanda, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us again. We'll look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you so much. Coming up, Jarrett Murphy will be chatting with a candidate to represent Brooklyn's 18th State Senate District. You'll meet Julia Salazar in a moment. Julia Salazar is the talk of the town. She's a Democrat running to unseat incumbent State Senator Martin Delon and represent Bushwick, Cypress Hills, and parts of Williamsburg and Greenpoint. She's been profiled by New York Magazine and The Intercept, discussed on New York One, seen on stage trading endorsements with Cynthia Nixon, and tabbed as a possible inheritor of the progressive mantle that carried Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to her stunning primary victory just last month. Now, most of that coverage focuses on Salazar's links to the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. Today, though, we're going to talk with a candidate not about identity, but about ideas. And so we welcome Julia Salazar to 112BK. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we are going to get to policy, but to talk politics briefly, uh, you have been getting uh, a lot of endorsements in this race, picking up some more, uh, I think, just in the past few days. Tell us about them, and, and to what extent do you think those matter? Absolutely. Yesterday, uh, Representative Velasquez and uh, Councilmember Reynoso, uh, as well as Make the Road New York, who have thousands of members in my district and across New York, endorsed me in this race, which are very valuable endorsements to me, both personally and politically. And we've also, as you mentioned, secured endorsements from other candidates and uh, community organizations. So you have a very detailed list of issues on your website, very impressive for this part of the race for, for any candidate. Housing is the top one, as it is for many people in their real lives. One thing you talk about is some of the rezonings that have been going on in the city or are contemplated, concerned about upzonings that might displace people. There are rezonings contemplated in Bushwick and Gowanus and Brooklyn. Do those worry you? I think that what's most important is that the community members who are going to be directly impacted by potential upzonings in Bushwick and in other parts of the district and outside the district, that the people who are directly impacted have a say in what the plan will be, and also that we make sure, as future legislators and as advocates, to demand regulation and demand policies that will protect tenants from the potential effects of upzoning. 
Uh, one thing you talk about is also extending rent stabilization to every apartment, which would mean even folks living in, I guess, luxury apartments would have rent stabilization. Do they, do they need that, and is that possible? I think that even if a tenant doesn't rely on rent stabilization, it's most important that we elevate the concerns of tenants who are being displaced en masse across North Brooklyn and across the state. So expanding rent stabilization means finally advocating for tenants over the interests of developers, which unfortunately we haven't seen in rent laws and housing policy in a long time. As part of your housing portfolio, you mentioned racial discrimination, which is interesting because many people don't bring that up, even though we have a very segregated city. How do you think state policy can impact that? I mean, it's already illegal, right? Are there other tools that we have that can reduce or eliminate racial discrimination in housing? Yeah, I think that it begins with addressing policies that currently incentivize tenant harassment, for example, put the question of discrimination, whether it's racial discrimination or class discrimination or anything else, in control of landlords. Policies like vacancy decontrol need to end, eviction bonuses. These incentivize landlords and uh, management companies to push people out at will. It directly lead to some of the segregation, the de facto segregation that we see in our neighborhoods, despite policies that are supposed to prevent it. Single-payer health care is something many of us have talked about for years. It seems like we're a little closer to it in New York State now than we have been in the past. And you talk about that. Um, do you think it's possible in the next session? Absolutely, I do. I think that the New York Health Act has a great chance of passing in the next session, but we need to replace the IDC members who have betrayed their constituents, those who have prevented the New York Health Act from getting out of committee. We know that it's a very popular policy among legislators and among constituents, and it's really urgent that people in North Brooklyn, across the state, that they can finally see a doctor, uh, regardless of, of their immigration status or their income. Is IDC, I mean, t technically they have disbanded, are they still a threat to legislation like this? I think it's yet to be seen how the newly disaffiliated members of the IDC, how they will behave as legislators if reelected. So I think that what we should be pushing for is to elect true progressives. I'm very hopeful about some of the IDC members' challengers and progressives like myself who are also challenging mainstream Democrats who, while not being in the IDC, have failed to demonstrate political will to pass, to, to really push progressive legislation through. That raises an interesting point. Senator DeLon did not join the IDC. He remained, as you said, in the mainstream. Do you feel as though you two have disagreements on policy, or is this about the extent to which she has actively and aggressively sought solutions? I think it is both. It is primarily that I don't think he is accountable to constituents. I, as a community organizer for nearly a decade in New York, as a community advocate, a legislative advocate, I have fought for more progressive reforms. I believe that Senator DeLon, unfortunately, his policy, both what he has supported and what he has failed to support, is the direct result of him being accountable to for-profit real estate developers, demonstrated by 
the enormous amount of money, tens of thousands each cycle, a hundred thousands um, of dollars over time that he's taken from the real estate lobby and for-profit developers, and that has resulted in his inaction on housing policy and rent laws that work for tenants in the last 16 years he's been in the Senate. So you obviously are also running for office. You must fund your own campaign. Uh, you will have your own donors. How will we know that you are not as beholden to them as you allege Senator DeLon has been to his, his friends in the real estate community? Absolutely. I hope that I am beholden to constituents, and I'm proud to say that we're running an entirely grassroots campaign. I've refused any donations from for-profit real estate developers or corporations. Our average donation is $27 although we have raised over $100,000 at this point, which puts us on track to run a strong and viable campaign and to be able to win this in September. So you talk a lot about kind of post-Janus, how New York State can fortify labor rights. And uh, you have a few ideas along those lines, extending collective bargaining to people who don't have it and getting rid of the Taylor Law. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. The Taylor Law prohibits public sector workers from striking in New York. And I think that in a post-Janus world, even in a state like New York that right now has very high union density, mostly from public sector workers across the state, the power of unions and organized workers is in jeopardy. The strike is arguably the most valuable tool that organized workers have in their battle for their rights and to give them leverage when bargaining and when trying to persuade the boss. So I think that it's very important to amend the Taylor Law to make sure that public sector workers, as well as private sector workers, have the right to the strike. I wonder, though, you know, after uh, the first year of de Blasio's mayoralty, we saw police officers turn their backs on him at funerals, engage in a work stoppage they're upset about changes to the job. If they were able to strike, they could have a pretty devastating effect on the city. Would you be worried about strikes by public sector unions that may be run counter to progressive ideals? That's a good question. I think that, ultimately, progressive ideals are rooted in workers' interests and the interests of the working class. I think that it benefits everyone when workers, particularly public sector workers, are empowered. And I think that workers—this is something that is always a concern when public sector workers strike, right, when we've seen transit strikes, not only in New York, but in Philly, public school teachers, they are acutely aware of the effect that the strike is having, and that's the source of its power. I think that we should be more concerned with the conditions that are leading public sector workers to strike. Workers everywhere are worried about the transit system and the flaws in it, deterioration and flaws that existed even before it began falling apart. You talk in your plan about improving the system in a number of different ways. The question people always ask is, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for things like making every subway system station accessible? Absolutely. I think that it's the state's responsibility to fully fund the repairs to the signal system, the money that the MTA needs in order to really repair our subways, our transit system. It's going to come down to a tax on the very wealthy. I also support a congestion pricing and want to make sure that the billions of dollars needed 
to finance the subway repairs, that it's enforced, that there is strict oversight, making sure that that is actually where the money goes, and ultimately into making sure that New Yorkers can get to work uh, and that, that they can move freely. One of the themes in the coverage of your race and some of the other interesting races this year is that it's not just about the policy issues of the day, but about democracy itself and whether this is going to reinvigorate it, bring people into the process. In terms of the mechanics of how we run elections, who gets to vote, how they register, that sort of thing, what kind of changes would you like to, to put in place to make the system more inclusive? I think that the most important change we need is to be able to publicly finance elections. We haven't seen in Albany comprehensive electoral campaign finance reform in years, and the result is that only, you know, the wealthiest people generally have free access to the electoral process and the legislative process. I know firsthand, as someone who was working more than full-time before I started this campaign, that it's incredibly challenging to run for office as a working person or a working-class person, and we need to make that more possible by allowing people to to have support when, when they need it. And additionally, we need to cut back on the influence that special interests have, uh, that the private sector has on our elections and who's able to run. So I think that public campaign financing is key. I also think that we need to support early voting. We need same-day re registration. We need to make it easier than it currently is uh, so that fewer people, ideally, that no one is disenfranchised in New York State. Not citizen voting as well? Yeah. I also support people being able to vote even if they're not a citizen. Julia Salazar, a candidate for the Democratic nomination, the 18th Senate District, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Afro-Latino Festival arrives this weekend amidst turbulent times as federal government antipathy toward members of the Afro-Latino diaspora here in New York has escalated. It doesn't feel like a time to celebrate, but that's not entirely what this festival is about. Yes, it is a celebration of culture, but it's also an opportunity to reaffirm and empower. To tell us some more about the festival and how it will address the issues we're facing, while also appreciating the many contributions this community makes to our city, we're joined by Amalcar Priestley, the festival's co-director. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And Ty Allen, who will curate a wine and beer day at the festival. Welcome back to 112BK. Thank you, sir. So, guys, thanks for coming in today. Really appreciate it. I know it's a busy week for you. Amilcar, tell me first, the conference tagline every year, affirm, educate, celebrate. Can we talk about the first two, affirm and educate, mm -hmm. and how that kind of figures in mm -hmm. to your programming? Absolutely. So, um, we came up with that tagline to basically account for or accommodate the three elements of the festival, that being the affirmation, being the award ceremony that we host, um, the education component being the Afro-Latin Talks Conference that's hosted by the Schoenberg Center. This will be a third year that we're having it at the Schoenberg Center. And then the, the third component, the celebration part, is the music and all the other kind of cultural right. events. You know, when I think of a festival, I think, you know, celebration, music, dance, mm -hmm. things like that, performances, culture. Mm -hmm. But you see a lot of festivals also having these educational components. Mm -hmm. This isn't the only year that you've been taking on bigger issues or been challenged with mm -hmm. big themes. You said a couple of years back it was Black Lives Matter. This year there's been a lot going on in the city, I mean, with, you know, with DACA, with 
immigration issues, mm-hmm. things like that. How do you guys kind of take that on and figure that into your into your festival? It's very organic. We're always constantly having these conversations. I always say that in the United States, Afro-Latinos are in motion. There's a large, great sense of excitement, particularly on social media. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, I don't quite think that there is a movement yet. You know, there are certain elements that it would take to have that. But there's a lot of excitement. And so we're always engaging people and having these conversations both on and offline. And so we're not necessarily able to forecast these, but but we have our pulse on a lot of the issues. And so, for example, this year, one of the panel discussions is going to be on justice systems in the Americas, uh, race, ethnicity, and justice systems in the Americas. And part of that is will engender the conversation about immigration and migration, but looking at it not just from a U.S. perspective, Mm -hmm. but from a hemispheric perspective. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, what we're seeing here is happening elsewhere and and is manifesting itself in similar and on different forms in Mm -hmm. other parts of the of the Western Hemisphere. And you talk about how Afro-Latinos, you say, are always in motion. Ty, can you tell me, how do you define Afro-Latino? Black Americans don't think Latin people understand that there might be an African diaspora. After Columbus came here and the Spaniards and Portuguese cut up Caribbean, Central America, South America, they imported slaves. Mm. Well, excuse me, they started slave trade, that's better way of saying it. So that mixture of the Taino, the natives of America, wasn't called America at the time. Black slaves did create a unique cultural situation of West African traditions, South African traditions, and, of course, the traditions of the um, natives here. Mm-hmm. But just create this new thing out for Latino, of black natives, and, of course, the mixture of European. And, but there's often a forgotten element of the Afro aspect. Like, for example, we're both Afro-Latino. Mm-hmm. I'm Panamanian-Jamaican, he's Panamanian, and probably some, some Caribbean roots in there as well. Because in, in Panama, because of the work on the canal and the free zone, a large swath of Trinidadians, Bayesians, and, and Jamaicans moved to mm-hmm to um, Honduras, Costa Rica, and um, Panama. Mm-hmm. Huh. So there's a, a history mm-hmm. that's similar, and just in the music and the food. Yeah. What, an empanada is just a bake, a, a Caribbean mm-hmm. bake. They look the same, they mm-hmm. made the same, just one has a Spanish tinge to it, one has an English patois to it. Right. And then the music. The music of the Caribbean, Spanish, Portuguese, French, or English is mm-hmm. based on a drum. Mm-hmm. It's based mm-hmm. on those polyrhythmics that come from West Africa, mm-hmm. even the religions. Santos, Santeria looks like the Catholicism that's practiced in some parts of Central America. Hmm. It's more intertwined than it's a part. Uh-huh. But language, and of course, unfortunately, the colonialism separates people thinking that mm-hmm. the languages are your marker versus the historical context. It should be your actual commonplace of marker. Hmm. Hmm. And so the Afro-Latino community here in New York, and maybe particularly in Brooklyn, has been around a lot longer than the festival. The festival's been around, what, six years? Six years. Talk to me about the founding of it and the development of it and how important it was maybe to connect that community and to do some of the things and recognize some of that, that heritage that, mm-hmm. that Ty was talking about. Absolutely. My wife, Maelka Prado, started the festival six years ago. She's a musician, a singer in her own right. And one of the reasons that she wanted to start the festival is because she felt that there weren't any platforms for Afro-Latino artists. You would either get pigeonholed into X, Y, or Z, but not be able to present the full palette of your identity within the context of your artistry. And so that's why that's one of the reasons why she started it. I had been helping out from the beginning, but I separately had an organization called the Afro-Latino Project, and with, that was founded by my father in 2006. Mm-hmm. And with that, we collect oral histories of Afro-Latinos throughout the Western Hemisphere. 
part of the reason was because while what we're experiencing now is the latest incarnation of folks excited about the conversation about Afro-Latino, this is a conversation that predates most of the people having this conversation right now. Ty spoke about the slave trade. The movement, so to speak, for liberation, recognition, et cetera, et cetera, has been around since then. There have been iterations from the 1920s in different parts of the Western Hemisphere. Arturo Alfonso Schoenberg, who the Schoenberg Center in Harlem is named after, was one of those here, right here in the United States, Afro-Boricua. Sorry. And also, in the 60s, 70s, there was an iteration, and then in the 90s, 2000s, following the U.N. Durban Conference. And so this, what we're seeing now, is the latest iteration hmm. of this conversation. Great. And we only have a little bit of time left, but uh, Ty, can you tell me real quickly what your intersection is in Tap and Cork and what you guys so are going to be doing? We started a year before they did. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, because the community is so small, we've always been supportive of each other. So Tap and Cork has been around, I guess, now seven years. And Tap and Cork uh, is a, a beer, beer, wine festival. beer wine festival. We wanted to expand Tap and Cork. I wanted to use what the information knowledge we had of providing craft beverages for primarily urban communities, well, anyone, obviously, because craft beer is craft beer. There's no color attached to that. Mm -hmm. But also trying to find beverage makers from Southeast Asia, South America, Central America, West Africa, East Africa, and Americas, to, to kind of give them a platform. Afro-Latino was the first time we actually have a—the second time, excuse me, last year was in Harlem. This year was Afro-Latino, a place where here, here's some beverages you can drink. For example, most people have no idea Brooklyn Lager, the master behind it, is an African-American. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Wow. All right, so so your event on Saturday, you, you're co-sponsoring one yeah, of the we're, dates? We're just, we're just partnering to curate the um, right. beverage experience. Okay, so you'll be there throughout. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a big culminating event in Brooklyn, right, mm -hmm. on Sunday? Mm -hmm. At the well. Yeah. So tell me about that real quick and then where people can get information if they want to participate. Sure. So the well is 272 Messerol in Bushwick. We have a headlining Amara La Negra from Love and Hip Hop. We have a number of artists directly from Colombia, Puerto Rico, Tribu de Abrante, Profetas. So we definitely encourage everyone to come out. You can get your tickets at www.afrolatinofestnyc.com. Okay, great. Well, fellas, thanks so much for coming in Thank and sharing you. this with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for the show today. Please join us tomorrow when Ashley will be back for an interesting episode, including conversations with the chair of the NYC Commission on Human Rights and a local journalist about her Tinder date with a Trump supporter. Bye-bye. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle, with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker, and our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>